Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barthlow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. This, this better, come on now. Are you ready to open your Bible? Say, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. I'm excited. Do me a favor. Open your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 7. Today, we start a brand new series in Luke chapter 7. We're walking through just two chapters in the gospel of Luke, Luke 7 and 8, and that will carry us through the end of the year. And the title of this series is Following Jesus. What we're going to be doing over the next 16 to 18 weeks is looking at the people who are following Jesus and the character of Jesus as he turns to lead, to love, and to care for them. I believe that this is going to be a transformative series, not only in that we get to learn more about Jesus himself, but also get to learn his heart and the way he loves even the most unlikely of people. And we kickstart our series today from Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 in your hearing. We're going to pray. We're going to let the Lord lead. And then I'm just believing God's going to do something mighty today. Do you have Luke 7? Say yes. You still look and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. See? Okay, one of us. All right, we're waiting. No, I'm kidding. Luke 7, 1 through 10, it reads like this. After he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He's even the one that built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. And when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends, saying to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The title of our time together today is, Wow, That's Impressive. <laughs> Lean over to your neighbor and say, wow, wow, that's impressive. It, maybe it's their hat or their shoes or something that they wore today. Wow, that's impressive. Do me a favor, let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we love you. You're good, always good. Jesus, we adore you. And we thank you. And Holy Spirit, we surrender to you right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you, ever, um, have you ever been impressed? Like, can you think about the most recent time that you were genuinely, like, impressed or marveled or, or wondered, had your breath taken away? Do you remember that? 
My, Chanel and I were watching a, a show on uh, Apple TV, and in the beginning, opening see, scene of the, the film, uh, this couple was on a boat, really cool boat, and they were going through the ocean. I was like, ah, oh, that's a cool boat. And that boat in the scene was just the transport boat to the real boat. And they pulled up to this yacht, and I'm not like a big fan of fancy materialistic things, but they pulled up to this boat, and I audibly was like, wow, look, whoa. It was just magnificent. And I was talking to Chanel this week. I said, when was the last time you were like really impressed? And she said, you know what? First time you ever took me to a Broadway show. We went to Wicked for her first time. And I remember, I mean, I take her to shows all the time just to see that face again. Because she was just like this, just, just wide-eyed, ear, you know, grin from ear to ear. Just loved it. And, and, it, and the truth is, is that, you know, to be honest with you, being, being in a moment where you marvel, where you're, you wonder when you encounter something that's just plain magnificent, like those are really great moments. Those are good, like life-affirming moments. My sons play football, and so pretty much for us, it's always like when some football player makes a move, right? And they'll pause it and, Dad, watch this, right? And we watch that. But you, you'll probably have something that just, it, it just gets you. Like you go into nature, and every time it takes your breath away, right? Or there's something in scripture, or you love music, or art, or you're in business, and there's just something like it, it. Just in that vein, it just it just gets you. You know, the world is full of marvelous things. That's for sure. The problem for most of us is that we get so enamored, so impressed by the world's things that sometimes we lose sight of God's things. I mean, it's very common for most of us here, if we're really being honest, to, to say that, like, you know, I'm mostly impressed by stuff, things. I mean, even if you're not like, you know, rich, you see somebody who is rich and you're like, wow. <laughs> right? We've been in a journey to buy a new vehicle. Kalel's about to be 16. We're going to give him my car. And, and we were debating what kind of a car. And so I was on Car Gurus. I don't know if you do that, but it is a never-ending hole for your attention. Um, and I'm like looking at cars I know we can't afford, but just for fun. I'm like, babe, babe, look at this, look at this. She's like, we don't have that money. I'm like, I, but if we did, I'll tell you what. <laughs> But it's not uncommon, even for the most pious of us, right, to really like be enamored by things, experiences, culture, power, authority. These things are impressive. When you meet somebody who's a master at their craft and you see them weave a tale or craft a song or paint a painting, you just think, my God, that's amazing. And it got me thinking this week, especially as I was reading through this scripture, that there's this instance in this scripture where it says that Jesus himself was impressed. The Bible says that Jesus marveled. And it had me wondering, does Jesus marvel at the same things that I marvel? Wow. When Jesus saw the boat, did he go, whoa, you know what, that's actually something. Probably not, right? It stands to reason that Jesus, because he's all God and all man, is rarely impressed by the things of this world. But the Bible does tell us that he is impressed here. And to kick off this entire series, I really want to talk about, like, what is it in us that might really get Jesus to marvel? This is a conversation all about faith, about surrender, about really seeing him for who he is and maybe, by contrast, seeing us for who we, we aren't. So we're going to walk through this 
passage of scripture together today, I hope that we get a good understanding of, of maybe how we can separate ourselves from being the kind of people who are enamored, marveled, wondered, impressed, captivated by the world and being the kind of people whose attention is so focused on Jesus that everything pales in comparison. So first, let's talk about this. Let's talk about a few things that Jesus is not impressed by. Can we do that? Because in the end, we're going to really talk about the way to get his attention. But I, wanna, I just want to be honest and talk about the things that are not impressive. First things first, because this is all about a story about a man who has power. So let's just say this. Power does not impress Jesus. Did you know that? Power does not impress Jesus. This story is so fun. This centurion, he has Power. If you don't know much about Roman history, you should know that a centurion is, is a commander of the Roman army who oversees roughly 100 soldiers, 100 century centurion. You get it, right? And, and his job is to lead a brigade that is mostly in charge of governance of a community. This centurion, if we can read into the text, and there's a parallel in Matthew that helps us to understand that he was likely the, the highest ranking military man from Rome in the city of Capernaum, which means that because Israel was under Roman occupation, this guy carried the biggest stick. Amen. He was the one to be most feared when anything that happened needed attention, needed governance, needed correction, needed discipline. It was him that you had to deal with. And I hope that in your mind, you're already sensing what might be the case in a man like that. You and I are all very well at how quickly power can corrupt. And when you think about Roman occupation over Israel, where the two cultures are so diametrically opposed, one monotheistic pagan in its nature loves in the hedonistic and commercial exploits and advancements of their own culture, even if it means to exploit and take over or even kill those in their subjugation, paired right alongside the chosen ones, those with one God to whom they're surrendered and live as best that they can to adhere to the law that was passed down through the prophets into this time. They're so different. And you, can all, you and I can only imagine that this century might be exactly the kind of bad cop that you hear stories about. But he's not. He's not. The Bible says that he knows he has this power. In fact, when he hears about Jesus, he actually commands elders of the Jewish people to go find Jesus for him. Later on, when he's talking about his own power in comparison to Jesus's power, he mentions to Jesus, not just that in verse three, he can command Jewish elders, but also in verse six, he says, I can command my own Roman friends. I have that kind of a power. In verse eight, I can command other soldiers. I can even command servants. And he's not bragging in this conversation, but he is exemplifying, examining, explaining that like, hey, just so you know, Jesus, like, uh, I got the juice. Like, I, I have power. And I wonder for you right now, as we're going to talk about power and how we deal with it, I wonder if you can just begin to think about, like, where in the areas of your life do you have the power? What relationships are you in right... Oof, here we go. Ready? What relationships are you in right now where you always have the upper hand? Can I ask you an even harder question? Have you designed some of those relationships like that? Have you made it so that you're always in the right and they're always wrong? You're always reasoned and they're always crazy. You're always the boss and they're always the follower. You're in the lead and they're behind. 
And I wonder if you've organized those relationships as such, or even if you've just found yourself in those relationships. I want to ask you real honest and true, like, how, 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 are you, how are you doing with that power? Has it, ready? Has it gone to your head yet? Because can I tell you, like, the enemy loves for that power to go to your head. Are you the boss at your job? And you've recently promoted to middle management? and you are exactly who you swore you'd never be when you were under middle management? Are you now the leader of your department? Are you now a parent? Are you now a spouse? Are you now this, whatever it is? Are you now in a place where power has come and has power done what power can, can do, which is corrupt? Has it started to take its hold on you? And I know it's gonna get quiet during this part of the conversation and don't worry, I'm not asking you to, to raise your hand or anything. You're new, it's the second time we have you raise your hand. Um, <laughs> I'm asking you to look close inside and say, what is my relationship with power and authority? How do I treat it? Because you know you're a lot different when you're not in power. Amen? Amen. I mean, there's times when, like, you know, you just, someone bosses you around and you're like, all right, and you just do it and you demure and you're humble and you take care of it. Now, when you leave the room, you definitely complain about their leadership and power. Amen? But there is a switch that happens when you go from being in the follow to being in the lead. And I want to tell you today that power doesn't impress Jesus even in the slightest. Romans, let's look at this real quick. Romans 13 and 1 tells us why power in the world doesn't impress the Lord. It says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is Paul writing in Rome about Romans. And he says, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason that power doesn't impress God is because all power is given by God. And I want to challenge this notion for you for just a second. It is true that the enemy can use power to corrupt even the most well-meaning of leaders. But I also want you to understand that even if you are un under uh, what seems like a poor-meaning leader, I need you to understand that God has put them in that position of power. Did you know that? The Bible tells us that there was no one in a position of power that the Lord missed, forgot, made a mistake on, right? He's not like, there's the leader, there's the governor, there's the mayor. Who put that one in charge? That never happens, right? He's never baffled by it. And I'm going to tell you this right now because maybe this will give you solace no matter what side of the aisle you are on and no matter which president is up in that office, especially when it's the one that you don't like, that was God's choice, even if you don't like it. Did you know that? And God will do whatever he needs to do to advance his mission, sometimes even picking flawed people. Amen? And here's the best part. Every one of us is flawed. There is no one president who is the right president for us. It's just God's choice for right now for God to get his way. And this should be a challenge for most of us because it's so easy for us to get allegiant to and tied to any number of parties and ideals or whatever that may be. But I want you to begin to think as a believer, because it's your mandate, because you have everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Whenever we talk about these issues of politics and power and race and division and gender and all of those things, I want you to begin to think as a Christian in decades and not days. See, when you're the kind of person who only thinks in days, you only think that what happens right now is the only thing that matters. But when you begin to think the long term, seeing things through God's eyes, you can know that while my party may have lost this election, Jesus never lost and he's still on the throne. Amen? Amen. 
And so while I may not like what happens at Capitol Hill or even in my local city council, what I do like is that my God is still working in and through it. And my trust is in him and not in them. And I'm looking down the road because I don't really know all of these little pieces, but I know where power comes from. And the same power that is on the everlasting throne that never ends is the same power in me. So they might have the title. Oh, here we go. I'm going to get a little charismatic for just a minute. They might have the office, but I have the power. I have the authority. The life and death is in my tongue. And it doesn't matter what laws come out or what debates happen, what legislation happens. If my God's still on the throne and he dwells richly in me, then I have all of the power still. Amen. Amen. And that power never corrupts because it's his imputed to his children. Amen. See, when you're really the kind of believer who has Holy Spirit power, you don't abuse that power because you recognize it's on loan for a season. Amen. That's why the best leaders are sweetie pies. I love being the leader of this church and I'm never mean, never mean. Ask any one of our staff. Even when I, that's not, I'm not making a joke, honest. But here, wait, pause, let's do this for a second. Do you know why that's kind of funny? It's because pastors and leaders are rarely nice. That is the the enemy's design, is to corrupt power, even healthy, holy power, so that when we're in an environment where they're supposed to be one with leadership skills or power, we already walk in skeptical. But the best leaders are the ones who recognize it literally isn't me, it's him. I just happen to be the first servant chosen on the docket and I'm going to serve from start to finish and I sure hope you join me on that. I mean, I I try to, I never try to exert authority in so much as sometimes our pastor and staff's like, you're going to do this thing or what? You're going to make a hard decision or not? Like the truth is I believe that great leaders and people with great Holy Spirit power should be the people with the greatest grace. Now that doesn't mean we tolerate sin. Amen. It means we speak truth in love but we never don't speak truth now i want you to understand the power doesn't impress jesus and power comes from the lord himself but like we're talking about here power does matter in the way in which we use it and what's unique about this centurion in this moment is that this centurion has the power to replace this servant. Notice the conversation is that the centurion has reached out to Jesus because he's heard about this healer, this rabbi, this teacher who can do things that no one else has. And yet this centurion has a servant who's sick. Now we need to talk about servant because it's a loaded term in the Bible. But in this day and age, a servant like this would be an indentured servant, someone who was working to pay off a debt. However, that's Jewish culture. This is a Roman. Stands to reason that this is actually a slave. And this Roman soldier who has all power to govern an occupied nation also has the power to simply kill this slave. A slave that's sick is not an asset anymore. It's a liability. And this centurion has the power to replace, to remove, or even to seek the counsel of any number of seers and soothsayers and necromancers, anybody who might conjure up a sorcerer or wish or or, or some sort of spell. He can do any number of those things. But the best part about the power in this centurion is that he does not replace the servant. It says he cares for the servant and he makes a request on behalf 
half of the servant. And so here it is, ready? What's your relationship with power and does it look like this? Is your power in any environment or relationship that you're in marked by the way in which you exert that power to help others with no power? Ready? That's power. The rest of it is just being bossy. Real power says, I'm going to take every resource that I have that you don't have and make it available to you. That's the gospel. Amen? So power doesn't impress Jesus, but something about this request from the centurion who has all power has gotten the attention of Jesus. And the thing I love about this story is that, you know, the, 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 the centurion could have gone after Jesus any number of ways, but he took a pretty strange route, actually. Verse 3 says that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. He sends Jesus' own people to meet with him. And it's such an interesting thing because this is actually not a picture of the centurion's power. It's more a picture of the centurion's influence. And so let's talk about that for a second because we're in the influencer age. Ready? Influence does not impress Jesus. It just doesn't. And if you are actively building a platform, it is not cool to Jesus. He doesn't care. Let me talk to all my young folks in the room. Your follower count is pointless to Jesus. Pointless. The way in which you can walk into a room and sway decision, the way in which you can make friends, argue your point, get your way through words, through charisma, None of those things matter to Jesus. I want you to see this for a second. This is pretty cool. Jesus is is invited to meet with a centurion, a Roman, a Roman who's erudite, sustainable, wealthy, self-sufficient, who should really have no need of the poor Jewish rabbi seen by his own elders as a rebel. But he reaches out, and he reaches out through these elders. And the elders have these beautiful things to say about Jesus. When they came to Jesus, verse 4, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly, and they said, the centurion, he's worthy to have you do this for him. This request that he's made, like, he's a good dude. You should really help him. And then they go on further. They said, he loves our nation. He's even the one who built our synagogue. Now, you could read that sentence and completely miss just how voluminous, how powerful, how absolutely magnificent those phrases are. For Jewish elders, seen as the cultural, religious, spiritual, and even emotional leaders of an occupied nation, to speak well of any occupying force is absolutely rare, let alone to use words like this, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, We should do something nice for the enemy. That's the phrase. His job by his very nature is to beat us. Let's do some good for him. There's something different about this centurion when they come to him. They say, Jesus, he's worthy of this, which is a strange phrase because we don't really talk about who's worthy. Even in Jewish culture, even in this culture, in this day and age, it was recognized that there was not one worthy of praise except for Adonai himself, God, Yahweh on the throne, and everyone else was chosen but had to adhere to the laws. Certainly not some Roman who's worthy. And they say, and here's how we know he's worthy. Ready, Jesus? He loves us. 
Now, this may be the first time that's ever been said about a Roman in this culture, certainly in Capernaum. This is the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. It is one of the most occupied towns on the Sea of Galilee. The fighting there, the rebellion there, the common conflict is so voluminous, it is considered to be one of the birthplaces of the Zealots. The Zealots were a form, a tribe, a sect of the Jewish believers who believed that the Messiah was coming, but he was coming with a big old sword. It was time to fight. They were ready for overthrowing the government. This was dangerous territory. And the elders say, Jesus, he's, good. he's a good dude. It's like super weird. We've never met a good dude. Romans are bad. This is a good one. I don't know what happened. And he like, he loves us. Jesus, he loves us. He like, I don't know what's going on, Jesus, but this guy's caring for us. And you know the, you know the synagogue in, in Capernaum? You know our church? He built it. You see the conversation now. Jesus would have heard this and said, why? Well, I, I want to meet someone who loves like that too. It wouldn't even have been he's worthy. It would have been, who is this guy? Who is it who has such authority, but all those under his authority don't know him by his power, but know him by his love? Do you know why this might have been intriguing to Jesus? Because it sounds a lot like Jesus to Jesus, doesn't it? They're like, we met one with all authority. And here's the thing. He's a sweetie pie. And Jesus is like, is it me? No. It's another guy. It's just like you. Jesus is like, well, let's go check it out. That's the beauty of influence here is that influence like this, it doesn't impress Jesus, but what does impress Jesus is how you use the influence in your life. God has uniquely positioned you in many spheres within your life, whether you be husband or wife, friend, brother, mother, employee, boss, neighbor. This is my season to be a good neighbor. Can I tell you this? It's not even in the notes, but it's just for fun. Um, I'm an introvert by nature. You've heard me say that before. I find most of my energy at home being quiet. I like, I like two people, my sons, and a third, my wife. And beyond that, I, I want to be alone. And, which doesn't make for very good ministry. So part of my life has been unlearning that skill. Because can I tell you that? That if you were born an introvert, you don't have to stay an introvert. You don't have to. You get to push through that and learn how to love people even when it's a challenge. And can I tell you this? It's a mandate. Jesus wants you to live that way. And so we moved into a new neighborhood this year, and we have all these new neighbors. And my behavior would usually be, if they're outside, let's go inside. <laughs> but the Lord was like, you can't do that. You can't be the only pastor on the block, and you don't talk to nobody. So I'm just, I'm just out leaning over the fence like tool time on home improvement. I'm just like, hey, neighbor, how you doing? They're driving my neighbors crazy. I'm down the street. I'm promising to buy people cakes. We haven't bought a single cake yet, have we? Doggone it. I'm helping. I'm doing everything. I even invited my neighbors across the street to come to church. Uh, he, he, he was sheepish when I asked him to come to church. And then later he came over and he said, you know, when you were asking me to come to church, I was going to tell you, hail Satan, just to scare you off. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you, you kind of did. <laughs> But I'm, I'm still going to keep inviting him. And, and, and it's just that season for me to learn that, like, you know what? What I do with the sphere in my life and the influence that God's given me, even if it's minuscule, and even if I'm the dopey guy who stopped talking to his neighbors, like, how I do that matters. 
Because influence is mostly about direction. How are we using our words, our charisma, our presence to point people, and where are we pointing them? And so Jesus doesn't care about influence. He cares about how we influence. And I want to show you the kind of influence that really pleases Jesus. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says like this, First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all the people, both for the kings and the ones who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The kind of influence that pleases Jesus, impresses Jesus, is the one that is not only trying to influence people, but influence the throne of God on behalf of people with no influence. Do you see the same metaphor? The kind of power that influences, that impresses Jesus is the one that uses their strength for those who are weak. And the kind of influence that impresses Jesus is the ones who can sway, who can influence, who can convict, convince, and get people to do things, takes all of that energy and points it to the Lord and says, there are people who can't reach out to you and they don't know how to call on you and they don't even yet know you, but I'm going to stand in the gap for them because I want them to meet you because you're so good. That's influence that impresses is Jesus. So my question today is, where do you have influence and primarily do you have it vertically? It's a question of your prayer life. Is most of your sway used to get people to do what you want? Or are you hearing the needs of others and using your sway in your prayer life? and in your relationship with the Savior to say, my mom is sick, my friend is lonely, my brother got dumped, my neighbor lost his job. Oh, and also I have some needs, but let's talk about them first. You see, the centurion has influence, but instead of exerting that influence, he intercedes on behalf of his servant. What a picture. I can imagine in Jesus' heart, he's like, yo, where is this guy? I gotta meet this guy. So let's talk about what's begun to happen in the heart of Jesus as he makes his way to meet the centurion. Let's do this. Let's really talk about what's impressive to Jesus. I'm gonna go back through this passage of text, almost line by line, and show you one or two instances in each passage that demonstrate that this centurion has begun to provoke the heart of Jesus to a place of wonder. Verse 3, we know that he intercedes on behalf of his servant. He takes his power and he reaches out to Jesus and he makes a request for someone who according to culture he has no need for. That impresses Jesus. It's remarkable to Jesus when you stand in the gap for others especially when they can never repay you. Can I say that to you? Because a lot of us, we'll, we'll stand in the gap. We have a little bit of a tit-for-tat mentality in our head, right? I will definitely help you if you know the kind of influence, the things that impress Jesus is when we cancel the ifs in our life. And someone's just like, I need help. And you're like, I got it. I'll do it. It's no big deal. Totally happy to help you. God must have put us in each other's lives for such a time as this. Verse 5, it does tell us that the centurion loved the nation, the nation that he governed. The centurion 
who has afforded his own tribe has such a heart like the Father that he loves outside of tradition and outside of culture to care for people that he's really mandated not to care for. So here's a good one for you. Do you extend love beyond the simple and easy boundaries of your culture, your race, your family, your religion, your taste? Are you a neighbor to everyone on your street? Can I say this? Are you a neighbor to the people that you're like, oh my gosh, they drive me crazy. There's a family at the end of our street. They've lived there for four months. They have not once mowed their lawn. I think I'm called to love them the most. And you just saw that conversation with Jesus happen right now. Doggone it, okay. Can you love beyond what's so simple to love? Can your embrace be wider, extend deeper, and pull in more strongly? Verse 6, and this is something we haven't even touched on yet, but I want you to understand this. Remember that the elders, when they interceded on behalf of the centurion to Jesus, they said, Jesus, he's worthy. But verse 6 shows the beautiful heart of the centurion, probably the linchpin in this conversation. He says this to Jesus. Jesus went with them, and he was not far off. And the centurion sent friends, and he said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. Um. You know, one of the things that I think is the biggest obstacle for many people to fall in love with Jesus is it's recognizing that he's God and he has power and we aren't and we don't. Especially the biggest obstacle for people who have walked in a season of influence or power. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Jesus is good and he's available to all. But there's something about being in a place of desperation, like where you finally realize, like, okay, <laughs> I messed it all up. I'm ready for Jesus, right? And sometimes, if I'm being honest with you, I pray that most of us get to that place. But sometimes we're not in that place. And I've met with people and articulated the gospel and loved on them and showed them and we brought them to church. But the truth is, is they just don't feel like they have a need because the world has affirmed them in such a way that their career is good and their money is good and their relationships are good. And they don't think they have a reason for Jesus because they already think that they are. I won't finish it, but you know where we're headed. See, when you think you've got it all together, it's very hard to recognize that there's one who has it even better. Sometimes the truth of the matter is, is that you don't realize how worthy he is until you find yourself in a place where you feel unworthy. And it's a cycle so that once you come to Jesus and then you really get to see him for who he is, it re-perpetuates it and you realize, I'm not worthy, but the best part is that he's worthy and he seems to love a wretch like me. The centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come here. I'm not a good guy. I've got to be honest with you. I don't even really understand all of the stuff that you're talking about, but I've seen in you something that I don't seen ever before. We believe in a million gods and we believe in carnality, but there's something about you. You've been healing and touching and loving people. And when I see the limitless of you, I know my limits and I'm not worthy for you, but I, I want you. And Jesus, in that moment, he sees, he hears, he begins to sense something in this man who's perched high, but sees himself so low in comparison to the one who's always high. Verse 6 says he also is a man who built the house of God for the people of God, but doesn't care about his own house. He says, not only am I not worthy, but I don't even want you in my house. I care more about your things than my things. 
This is the same conversation that you might hear as an echo between God and David and his son Solomon, a question about whose house are you building. And a good question I might ask you today is, where is all of your focus? Where is all of your finance? Where is all of your family? Where is all of your energy? Are you building God's things or are you building yours? Don't get me wrong, it's not bad for you to build good things in this world, but if they're not God things, they're dead things. Did you know that? You can build and have a great business and be, even be a man or a woman of integrity and build great wealth and have a nice house, but if it's not God's, you can't take it with you and it's not blessed. You live under some other covering and not his. I'm going to tell you today, you can be the richest person in the room, the most successful, more power and more prestige than anyone's ever met and you can still be miserable. You can also be the poorest person in the room, but the most free at heart. And when light of that the question is clear. He says, I care more about your things than I care about my things, and I'm not even sure that I, I deserve to be around you. And the best part in verse 7, the truth of the matter is, is that you know, he, he could have arrested Jesus. This is the centurion. He's the commander of the army. If he really wanted to get Jesus' attention, he would have just turned to any number of the 100 soldiers who are at his beck and command and said, go get Jesus from Nazareth. Bring him here immediately. They could have dragged him in, kicking and screaming. He could have demanded of the Messiah a healing. This is my servant. Fix it or die. That's the power he has. But he doesn't arrest Jesus. He requests Jesus. It's like he knows exactly his place in comparison to Jesus. Can I push you? Do you know where you stand with Jesus? Do you know? I hope that over the course of this week, that question keeps coming up. <laughs> You're like, thanks for ruining my week. That's great. <laughs> I want you to ask that big question day in and day out. Where are we? Do I just call you a friend? Are you just a good time buddy? Are you just, you know, are you there when I need you? When, when you know, when someone runs a red light and I yell your name? Is that when you show up? Or are we deeper? Do I get to walk into the fullness of all that you have for me, be it joy and peace? Are you closer than a brother? Are you my kinsman redeemer? Are we thick like we're meant to be thick? Or do I just make demands on you when I need things done? Verse 7, this is the last part, and then we'll close here. When the elders tell Jesus about the centurion, and they say he's worthy, And then he, they say he loves them. And they even give an example of something that's unlikely. They're like, he built our church. <laughs> and from a pastor, I'd be like, yo, he gets everything. Save him. He built our church. He cared for our home. And they, they intercede. They, they advocate. And then they'd say something strange to Jesus. Because see, here's the thing. They don't yet get it. They say, Jesus, he's worthy of you to do this thing. See, because they're Jewish, they're Old Testament, they're still living under rabbinical law, they believe that all things are about the doing. So it's the law. We have to do in order to receive. We have to act. We have to practice. It's all religion, right? And, and it's the same curse that's on religion today that says you'll get God's attention. He'll love you if only you do these things, right? 
And so when they talk to Jesus, they're like, he's good and it's worthy that you would do it. But the centurion doesn't see it like that. He says, not only am I not worthy, Jesus, to even be around you, I sent my friends to stop you because I just feel so weird that like, if you really are who I think you are, I don't want you to see me as I really am. See, the other thing you should know about the centurions is with all of that power comes any number of fleshly pleasures. Who would prevent this man from taking advantage of anyone and anything? And the answer is no one. And while he has a heart for people, it's right here where he realizes, like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for us. But if you just say the word, I don't even have to be in your presence. I, if you just, if you would just speak, I don't even have to come and touch you. And I'm not even sure that you would ever touch me. But I, I don't think that you need to do anything for me. I'm a little bit nervous that this might be weird. And you might really see me and really be disgusted by me. The truth is you might not help my friend who's dying. And I'm desperate for him to, to see you, to be saved and to be healed. And so I don't think I'm worthy. But, but you don't have to show up if you just speak those things that be not as though they are. And I know that they will be. And it's that phrase right there that stops Jesus in his tracks. Because for some reason, while the Jewish elders don't understand that the power of life and death is in Jesus' tongue too, that he's the same God who spoke all things into being, what happens is in the heart of the centurion, he recognizes that if this is the healer that heals everybody, he doesn't have to touch nobody because the power is in him and emanates from him. So that's why he says, Jesus, I'm a man under authority. I get it too. I don't have to be present for things to happen. I can tell my soldiers to go and they go and it's done. And if you are who I think you are, you can cast the demon out without even being in the room. And Jesus is like, hold up. <laughs> have we met before? I think in this moment, Jesus is like, no, you... Uh, you know me. And I wish in your sanctified imagination you could turn around and see Jesus turn to the crowd behind him, the multitude of believers who followed him to this moment, who are a little unnerved that he's talking to the Roman centurion in general, and he turns to them and he says, truly I tell you I've never seen such faith. And he looks at the Israelites and he says, not even in Israel. Because here's the deal. This is a man with limited doctrinal understanding, but an encounter with Jesus. And that is all he's needed to develop a faith that changes the atmosphere around him. And this is the push for us today, the final conversation, which is this. You might have come here today and not known all of this religious thing. You might have somebody in this room who invited you to church, and you were like, please don't invite me to church. And they were like, you have to come to church. And you're like, I never want to go to church. And they're like, just please come once. Did that happen? <laughs> and you're like, fine. 
And you feel like all of these weird conversations and all of this story about up and down, everlasting life and forgiveness and Adonai and Yahweh and Israelites. What is all that? And I want to tell you today that all that comes. But the truth of the matter is, is that faith can be birthed in a moment just in the same way that you can be marveled, wondered and impressed by the world in an instant, in a simple experience. So too can you come to a saving grace and an understanding of who Jesus is just by where you are and just by what you feel right now. You said, I don't know the Bible. Don't worry. No one else really knows the Bible either. That's why we're reading it. If everyone in this room got it, I'd just be like, remember on page 43? And we'd all laugh. <laughs> but that's not how this works. Every one of us has come to an encounter with Jesus. And it's been a mustard seed of faith that he's sparked, that he's grown, that he's fostered. And he's done it through community, through church, through word through prayer and through worship. And I think the best part about the whole story is that Jesus sees a man who has authority and influence but counts it all for nothing when he meets Jesus. And that's the invitation for every one of us here today. I don't know where you come from, but the invitation to Jesus is to see him as he is in his fullness and in his goodness and to recognize that no matter what you possess here, he's still bigger than that. Still good. Still great. And he has power to save. And he commends the faith of the centurion. And when the friends go back to the house, guess what? The servant, he's healed too. Because our God is a God that gives strength to the weak. And if that's you, you're in the right place. For our God is also a God who loves it when we surrender our strength. Because it's in that that we find his. Would you do me a favor? Would you bow your head all over the room today? I want to pray with you. I want to thank you for being here today. And I want to thank that the Lord has done something in this room today. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Jesus, we adore you. Thank you for your sacrifice, for your love for us. Holy Spirit, we sense your presence right here. God, there's a few of us in this room. You're speaking right to us. You touch these instances and the way in which we deal with power and influence. Maybe the way that these things have begun to misalign us or redirect us to the wrong place, God. Maybe you're here and this prayer has been the beginning of an open door for you. Jesus, for those of us who are feeling weak, feeling lost, feeling alone, feeling like we can't even find our way to you, God, this is our moment where you found your way to us. And for those of us who finally recognize that when standing in the light of Jesus, we're unworthy, the best part, Jesus, is that you call us worthy when we're washed in the blood. So for all of us in the room here today, I'm gonna give us an opportunity that if you've never said yes to Jesus, you can begin that conversation today. You can begin that journey of growth today. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm gonna say a prayer. But before I do, if that's you, if you feel like the Lord's calling on you, inviting you, knocking on the door of your heart to come back home, I'm gonna ask you to do one simple thing and it's just simply look up at me real quick and just make eye contact at me. I see you, I see you, I see you. 
Don't look away until I get a chance to see you. I want to agree with you today. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. If that's you today, I see you. We're going to pray a prayer, and the best part about church is we all pray it together. Would you repeat after me? Heavenly Father, I've sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But today I ask forgiveness. I ask that you would take my sin away. Jesus, I believe. You died on a cross. And you rose from the grave. And because you live, I can live. I know you as Savior. And I know you as Lord. Use my life. Lead the way. Amen. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Or join us in person at Beacon this Sunday, 10 a.m. at Comedy Works, 1226 15th Street in Denver, Colorado. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go!